0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: And today, Neil, I wanted to talk about distributed versus centralized intelligence. And the sort of the thoughts around here are kind of like you and AI, which feels like very broad. Tell me more.
1: The the events, the Royal Society did a, an event called You and AI, which was a panel discussion around AI as part of their increasing interaction with AI for the public. So it was... Um, Three of us, Eva Luger and uh, Wendy Hall, myself, and Jim Khalili, who hosted the panel. And one of the things they had was they had swarm robots, because uh, I guess you always have to have robots because uh, they do stuff.
0: Because people think that AI is robots. Yes.
1: Yeah. And I guess the point with swarm robots was their distributed intelligence. Anyway, I was sitting there watching this demo because it was sort of in the middle of the debate, and um, they were asking about what swarms meant. And I do think of them as distributed intelligence. But what occurred to me while uh, it's answering something I've thought about a lot before. So humans have two intelligences inside them. Well, at, at least two. One is the brain, but the other is the immune system. So you're constantly fending off viruses, bacteria, whatever foreign objects entering your body using your immune system. And that's a distributed intelligence. So it has all these i don't think it's even fully understood but my understanding is that it, it does some refinement in the appendix and other organs of what the immune cells are and it has some memory um that's why we get inoculated but it doesn't have a centralized consciousness i mean like the thing is like uh, I, I said it all occurred during the panel but then i had this sort of notion of like um Sending up to the brain, we've discovered a virus in sector 43C. Shall we terminate it? You know, wait, I'm busy talking now. I can't deal with that. Just put that, you know, of course, it doesn't make any sense. I, I always see, see intelligence as uh, use of um, information to achieve a goal with less resource. I'm not quite sure how that maps in this case, where the goal is, you know, to get rid of it, probably doesn't map quite as easily as in some cases. It's interesting the different natures of the tasks you're doing there. One where you've got many, many little threats coming in and the other one where you are an information-isolated entity in your brain and you're sort of trying to communicate what your intent is and everything else. And you get a very different structure around those intelligences. Um, and, you know, I, I thought, oh well, I'm, I'm going to make more use of that point in when trying to describe to people that, look, intelligence that you perceive around you that we're developing is not like the brain i mean if arguably it's more like that distributed intelligence of the immune system uh yet not communicating i mean the immune system does all these sort of things of cytokine for communication that's why you can go into shock because that the the immune system you get immune shocks where your immune system overreacts because it doesn't have a centralized, oh, no, I've taken it a bit too far. It's, you get some sort of cascade effect where there's a response and it goes into a regime it shouldn't do. And the immune system starts attacking, attacking your own body. It's extremely dangerous because it doesn't have this consciousness. It has, you know, just probably simpler rules. And, you know, people do work in artificial immune systems. I don't. I'm not an expert. But I, I think in some sense, what we're creating is somehow closer to that uh, than the brain.
0: Could you think of it in the same way with the, the autonomic nervous system and sort of like all the other systems that we rely on internally every day, but don't have conscious control over, digestive, breathing?
1: Well, you could think of, I mean, at another level, you can think about each cell is making decisions all the time, right? So they're sensing, any cell is is sensing, responding. I just, so, so yeah, at another level... I mean, the nervous system, I think, is interesting because it shows one of these points I make, I try to make, which is my main point I make with public understanding of science, is that we're very information bandwidth constrained, this thing I call embodiment factors. And the, uh, the nature of our intelligence is a, is a consequence of that. It's a consequence of our limitation, not of other things. And then when you so see, when you get the nervous system and its ability to, it's effectively a communication between multiple cells, which were independent entities at once. So your body is like the Borg in that sense, right? You know, all those cells have chosen to operate together and they use the nerve system to communicate at the speed of light. So apparently when you're not information bandwidth constrained like our cells aren't because they signal with each other and then use electromagnetic communication and i mean crazy stuff around your nerves to communicate then you are one entity you view yourself as one entity but in another sense you're not you know you're all of these individual cells some of which are choosing to die so other cells can live but that was the original unit of life so to me that helps well i don't know i may use it more in trying to communicate look this perception of the intelligence we're creating is is more well should I, i you know should be more like that multicellular organism where things are communicating if we get it right i don't see any reason why it would become like human intelligence where we're so you know we've got so much computational power but so little ability to share it that we're like constantly scheming i mean that's how you end up scheming
0: so th- so that's really that's really fascinating but just this this shift of thinking away from what humans experience as their own intelligence to just even the larger intelligences that help our bodies function right
1: yeah and maybe some people don't like that notion meaning intelligence but that then don't use the term artificial intelligence because we ain't creating anything like the other thing. It, it, it just, there's many, many forms of intelligence and, and most of them don't seem anything like human intelligence. And, you know, actually, I'm even curious about what people mean by AGI now. Do they mean human-like intelligence? The immune system is a, a general decision-making system. It's, it's constantly, oh, and you look at over time, you know, how it's communicating itself to the next generation and everything else. It's just extraordinary. I mean, so it depends sort of what scale you look at. We're a little bit self-centered, I think, for good reasons. And self-meaning Not thinking on behalf of our immune system, thinking on behalf of our brain.
0: Right. Yes. Well, we'll have more about artificial immune systems. And if you want to tweet at us what you think AGI means today, you can tweet at us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. And we'll have more about artificial immune systems on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So, Neil, I have a question for you this week. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm jumping over our Twitter feed and our email box. I'm wrestling to the ground because I've got a question. And I think that it, it folds nicely into our discussion just a, a little bit ago about our focus on our brains. The Neural Information Processing Systems Conference is coming up, right, whose name was chosen because uh, people were really interested in biological neural inspiration for thinking about these intelligence networks. What are you excited about? What are you excited to see at the conference this year? we got a whole week in Montreal, it's bigger than ever. What are you looking forward to?
1: It's funny, like you asked me the question and I suddenly remember, oh my goodness, there's academic content in the conference as well.
0: It's not just a circus?
1: (laughs) I'm looking forward to the elephants. They're going to be artificial elephants. What am I looking forward to this year? Well, I'm really interested to see how the first expo goes. The idea is to have a part of the conference that is more orientated towards many of our commercial partners. But the idea with the expo is to have something there, which is more oriented towards some of the industrial things, because there's a lot of stuff going on on the industrial side. And, you know, this is a We've seen the sponsors section increase in size and even sort of be separated a bit last year, I think it was, in Long Beach from the main conference. And this is a sort of extension of that where there's a day before the rest of the program starts, which is dedicated entirely to... industrial partners. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that goes.
0: Yeah. and And if I have it right, if I understand what's going on there, it's sponsors of the conference were invited to submit an application to talk about some of their, to like do a demo or a workshop or a talk about some of the questions that they're asking, right? Like some of the work that they're doing. So it's not just like trade shows. It's like, what is the content that our industrial partners are focusing on? a way to like sort of like build a little box around that
1: that's exactly right i think it's um there's been a tendency for people to want to do demos at their booth anyway and you, it's sort of a response to that demand i mean like all large organizations where there's sort of collective decision making you know maybe we could have done that last year or whatever but you know you see that pressure there and you've got the sense well we should fulfill that
0: You've been going to the conference for a really long time. Is there a thing that you like usually look forward to? I mean, it's it's really kind of a place for people to exchange direct information with friends and colleagues that they haven't seen and maybe haven't seen since ICML, the International Machine Learning Conference, earlier in the year. Is there a particular thing? Like, do you always show up for somebody's tutorial or is there like one workshop that you can't miss?
1: I think that's interesting. I mean, it used to be, okay, so some of the things I do that I think I've said before, is I try and stick in one workshop all day and not flirt around workshops just because I typically find I get a more satisfying experience that way. I think the first Talking Machines where Ryan was interviewing me, one of the things we talked about about how it's kind of like a family reunion. But I don't, I think that that was a while ago. I really, I almost don't feel that anymore. I feel it's so big now. It's hard to see all the people I want to see. And I just feel pulled in a lot of different, Directions. There's a lot going on, and in some sense, I don't know. um, It's also harder to see all the program. And you know, if I look at the scale of the program, so skimming through the posters, yeah. I mean, there's just directly in my area, there's more material than I could possibly assimilate. And actually, I am concerned about this sort of so what factor around a lot of the work nowadays because there's so often. You sort of see reviewing doesn't do a great job understanding whether something's a a really important problem or not, because you just don't necessarily have that experience in your reviewing body, particularly in a growing field, because a lot of your reviewing body is only just starting to understand the context. I do struggle a little bit nowadays when I'm at conferences to get into things, because sometimes you hear something and you think, okay that sounds like it's this combined with that which is fine but uh, you know you're not like um you're not sure why you should care machine learning is at its best when people are cross-fertilizing amazing ideas to do very cool things but in some sense the best very best ideas are the ones that you can explain quickly but no one ever thought of before but they are often very harshly reviewed because if you've explained them quickly people don't think, oh, I'd never thought of that before. That's amazing insight. They think, oh, that must have been simple, right? That's obvious now. Now you've explained it so clearly.
0: Now you've explained it. Now I understand. How could that be moving forward? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, so So I personally struggle a bit. I don't know how other people manage. Um, I think people put a lot of time into what they're going to look at. And, and for that reason, I mean, the program is always interesting in terms of what's and a lot a lot more as we go on is um, reliant on the sort of the invited talks the bryman uh, lectures i'm very i always enjoy listening to david spiegelhalter speak he's so great on, on public understanding of risk he's, he's based actually he's based here in cambridge but he has all these uh, mechanisms because of uh, david spiegelhalter i jumped out of an airplane
0: well, if you are looking for a justification to fling yourself out of an airplane or or other <laughs> attend David talk. Um, I, I am super excited about the talk, one of the invited talks, the investigations into the human AI trust phenomenon. I think that that will be really cool. I think that's Professor Howard. And then also, this is the second year for the competition track, which was a lot of fun to sort of watch unfold last year. And I'm really excited to see how they have changed it or who the winners are and what sort of questions are, are up for this year i'm pretty sure that the questions are already up and probably have been for a while but it's always exciting to sort of like see it unfold live
1: and there's a number of uh like one thing i noticed a little bit because i've just been invited to a couple of things there's a number of fringe events to the conference that's exciting i i don't know all of them but i've been i mean i think they're smaller workshops where people are just getting together isn't there's something like the g7s there or something or was that already there that's the their presidents of the G seven is it, could we count that as a fringe event? Has...
0: <laughs> the Canadian government is holding a thing, so that's really interesting. Yeah, the um
1: yeah, so Canada to host yep. G seven conference on artificial intelligence on December the sixth. Yes. right at the same.
0: Time as NIPS, yeah. They, I believe the the minister for innovation and technology, and I'm I'm not sure if that is exactly his specific title, uh, announced a couple of weeks ago that as Canada's presidency of the G7 closes, they'll be hosting this event because NIPS is being held. It's not in conjunction with NIPS, it's not related to NIPS, but it is around. I think we can count it as a fringe event. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also a bunch of really interesting co-located workshops this year, which are sort of taking off from the Wimmel model. There's Black in AI, which is co-located, Queer in AI, Latinx in AI, and I believe Jews in ML. So it's all really interesting to see those affinity groups, those people coming together to have like a, a deeper discussion about issues that matter to them and help really bring questions and issues and conversations around diversity and inclusivity to the fore, right? I think it's uh, important for everyone in the NIPS community to be thinking about not only the work that we do and the science that's taking place, but what our community looks like.
1: I agree. I think that that's interesting. While you were saying that, I was wondering, is the fringe going to become bigger than the conference one day? Because, of course, you know, there was all the controversy which I don't know. I mean, I, personally, I was, I guess, because I actually read what they were doing or knew what they were doing. You know, I, I'm not quite sure what more they can do around releasing tickets because, you know, basically you have a certain amount of space. They reserved a very large fraction for presenters and uh, reviewers and workshop presenters they've held some back for. So the actual amount of tickets they could release on the moment of opening. There's very few. And then there's challenges that you're releasing, different time zones. I mean, all these things have come up. And I, do, I know we talk about them on the, but uh, it's sort of, it's hard to know, you know, it's not easy. There's not like, oh, uh, well, we'll just um, solve that then. You know, there's uh, lots of interesting ideas. I think that the, how to do that will be uh, revisited again for next year.
0: So we should say that, uh, in full disclosure, that Neil, you and I are the press and media chairs for the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference for this year. So we will definitely be there. And if you are there and you see us, say hi. We love to chat with people about the show and what you think about it. So if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at machines at gmail.com or tweet at us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Garth Gibson, who is president and CEO of the Vector Institute in Toronto. And when we got a chance to talk with him at the Deep Learning Summer School at Toronto this year, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are?
2: Uh, I have a, an undergraduate in the Bachelor of Mathematics in uh, Computer Science and Applied Mathematics from the University of Waterloo. Nice. I went from there to uh, Berkeley and uh, I did a PhD with our recent Turing Award winner David Patterson nice. um, in the uh, late 80s and uh, then I went to Carnegie Mellon as a professor in Computer Science and uh, I was there for 25 years. <laughs> uh, uh, it took a few years in the middle to do a startup, <laughs> and uh, was involved in consortiums. And uh, somewhere in about uh, f- seven years ago, I started a computational data science master's program. Yeah. Actually, I started the system side of it. We really had an, a 10-year-old a, a computational data science that mm. came originally was called uh, uh, large, uh, very large information systems. Um, and so I, I got involved in all of those things that got me uh, selected to be the victim of choice to help <laughs> with uh, uh, administrative problems with uh, rapidly growing masters programs mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and so I did an associate dean as well.
0: Fantastic. Mm-hmm. And now here you are at the the Vexter Institute, the I president and CEO
2: I am uh, the, the uh, I guess vector is was an idea in late 2016 mm-hmm. uh incorporated in early 2017 and they started looking for a ceo around the middle in april of uh last year <gasps> and uh, uh they were looking around for people that had academic experience knew something about ai in, had run a consortium had knew the private sector mm-hmm. um and uh i thought gee I like those things. <laughs> uh, half of my PhD students are doing machine learning. The systems associated with machine learning today, and uh, I thought, cool. You know what? My mother lives in that town.
0: Wouldn't that be a good place to live? <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and you took the you took a position in January of this year, right?
2: Yeah, I started January second, um, two thousand and eighteen. So this is month seven.
0: Wow, and mm-hmm. and already we've seen the vector grow by leaps and bounds.
2: And, you know, this is a the whole field. Everything about it is moving quickly. <laughs> to say the the least. exploitation is moving quickly. The technology is moving quickly. Uh, I am very pleased to say that the people who set the board that set up Vector moved quickly. They put together uh, a large commitment of funds. They got good partnerships mm-hmm. in place. They pulled a few people from strategic um, uh, uh, relationships with other universities and with uh, the provincial government. And when I came on board, uh, we were opening the doors to a beautiful new space physically close to the university. and. Uh, and then we were we had reasonably healthy budgets and we said now we need to deliver um, and then it's been go 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 ever since
0: yeah yeah and mm-hmm. so tell me um i mean tell me about how you have seen the the vector mandate evolve and change and i know that there's all sorts of stuff going on with pan canadian institutes and things like that but but what's what's the
2: the driving the, factors yeah. here the driving factor is uh by uh, some foresight in places like CIFAR, uh, um, the Canadian uh, uh, Institute for Advanced Research, putting strategic money into big bets, mm-hmm. long bets, mm-hmm. into brains and neural networks uh, in a couple decades ago. Um, I think it's only one decade ago. But uh, that bet led to... Um, a reservoir of people working hard on trying to replicate or create the ability to solve problems in ways that are inspired by the brain, mm-hmm. the neural network mm-hmm. model. And, you know, many people in the field weren't sure that that was going to be successful. Um, we had been the, through the AI winter Winters, of yeah. the past, yeah. where a certain amount of over-promising had happened. And, uh, and then you know you see this a lot. I was listening to the radio, and someone said, "Since we can solve chess, we must be able to do anything a human can think." <laughs> um,
0: oh, good! Yeah, glad that news is out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, so that the 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 there is a, an instinct amongst people that when something they didn't think could be done mm. has been demonstrated to be done, they extrapolate that to everything they're worried about. Yeah. Um. And so so that there, it is the case that amazing things have happened. Those amazing things happened st- are often in Canada, driven by Canadian people that are still in Canada want to be in Canada. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so the recognition amongst the Vector leadership was, gee, we can't let that opportunity pass. We have to double down on it. We have to help it grow. We have to help, help it cope with the fact that it's going to be rated massively. Yeah both for to be pulled away um, uh, which may be very good for the individual but may not be good for their academic career or their training of future Mm -hmm. thinkers Mm -hmm. so we want to make it easier for them to continue to contribute to the ecosystem in the generation of new people Mm. we want to make it so that those new new people know where to go we want to put a signpost out that says hey there's the pan-canadian ai strategy it involves three ai institutes they're all doing really cool things. Come and join one of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: right? So that, that's, that is the starting point. But the other side of this is that the, uh, the reason that, that all of this uh, deep learning, reinforcement learning is important is because people have figured out how to do something with it. Mm-hmm. So the, the ability to do personalized advertising, the ability to win the AlphaGo, the, 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 the ability to replicate capabilities that we used to think only humans could do, uh, has caused a lot of companies to say, wait, that that can change. For me personally, the insight was um, uh, the Arabic-English translation. So in 2005, when uh, uh, Google decided to enter into the competition with NIST and came in with a lot more data and compute than the other players were using, but not in anywhere near as many years of attacking that problem mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and did a better job. The first, uh, you know, human uh, class uh, translation or useful translation. Uh, I thought that was phenomenal. And I thought, you know, this isn't just about translation. Yeah. This is about any place where the analysis and understanding of what you're actually doing and what has been done in the past can, in fact, be captured, and give you competitive advantage. When you start talking competitive advantage, mm-hmm. you start talking all industries. Yeah. Right? And so it is not the least bit surprising to me that all industries have started to pay a lot of attention. Yeah. Uh, and so that side of it said, well, it's really good to, to ensure that the Canadian universities and the Canadian ecosystem are part of the generation of ideas But we also want to make sure they're part of the consumption Mm -hmm. and utilization of Mm -hmm. ideas. Mm -hmm. So, the other dimensions we're doing are uh, just as important and perhaps are uh, even more important to the local um, uh, governments and ecosystem, the society around them, is to engage with big companies and small companies and help them fully understand what's available, what's changing, how they might use it in their own organizations, who are the leaders, where to look for information. Um, a, a little bit of advice, some practice, some uh, edu- educational programs to accelerate their yeah. adoption. So we have 25 corporate partners, roughly, and roughly 15 startup partners wow. uh, that are a part of, from that are private industry. We mm-hmm. also have hospitals, and we have governments, and we have incubators we're working with.
0: Yeah, So it's sort, of, it's sort of split between attracting people to generate the ideas and do the foundational work and then um, making that work accessible, bringing in the, yeah. the, the utilization capacity for these ideas.
2: You know, in some sense, um, I'm an academic, and so I know that what the academics want is they want things they consider to be tedious and mundane to go away, <laughs> and they want the freedom to Pursue whatever ideas whatever they have, they have. Yeah. and and they want whatever resources they need to be there when they first think they need them. Right. Uh, so so that's our job, mm. uh, and uh, so we we think of ourselves as uh, as a research institute, which is not a directed research institute. Mm. So so the way to think about. Academic ideals is that you do your direction when Mm -hmm. you hire. Mm. You hire the people and then you follow their instincts. Right, right. Um, And so, in that sense, the biggest tool of shaping is not coming in and trying to tell someone what to do, but to choose and hire the people that you have that you think you should follow. And then the support of industry is is engagement. It it is persuasion. It is: Do you have a good problem? Do you have a good data set? Mm -hmm. Can we? Uh, find problems that our industry has that are going to inspire the industry but also inspire the academics can we bring to the academics a problem that could have a giant impact on society yeah because you know they call us theoretical but we're really very applied (laughs) we want to change the world the biggest papers are the ones that do something yeah yes you know the the it there there may be a uh, a subcurrent, like in all fields, mm. of working on underlying property that mm-hmm. no one is going to understand for 25 years. Right. But the vast majority of us want a kicker in our papers that right. causes everyone to go, oh, my God, I didn't know you could do that.
0: When that underlying property solves chess and then people start saying everything else is solved now, too, yeah. don't don't you love having worked <laughs> on the underlying property? So that
2: one, that that, that yeah. one's an interesting one. The underlying property solving chess mm. was computer speed.
0: Right. Right, yes. There's and a bounded so many. number of
2: choices and a bounded number of moves and a clearly defined notion of what a win is. Mm-hmm. And so if you have the computational speed to actually execute every possible chess game...
0: Right, then then and if... You, yeah, right, of course, <laughs> then it seems like it's solved. Yeah, and I mean, so many of the advancements have been because simply our compute is much... Oh, better but, now. But we're
2: humans. Our ambition doesn't... You know, we've got exponential growth in compute, mm. but we have hyper exponential interest in challenging <laughs> problems. So when when we're now talking about, okay, can we uh, tackle something like Go? No, mm. no, no. That's, that is much more choice yeah. than there was increase in speed from the chess competition to the, to the Go got competition. It. And that took new technology. Mm-hmm. That took the reinforcement learning ideas. Mm. So that's really cool. So what you do is you, you take a problem that... Maybe our level of sophistication at the time um, can imagine accomplishing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you focus attention on it. You try all the low-hanging fruit easy ways, and then you start to get inventive. Yeah. Um, And you tend to get inventive because you you can't simply write a check big enough to do the brute force way.
0: right. Yeah. Um
2: and so so in some sense that's an advantage for a university because you run out of the ability to write a check long before the big tech companies run right. out of the ability to write a check.
0: Right, right. So what are the questions that are getting asked that really excite you, that's sort of like on the edge where you have to start sort of intellectual MacGyvering of things?
2: You know uh so so, you know, the last night, so you had uh, uh Jeff Hinton and Yashua Bengio and Rich Sutton talking and so you know one would say, "Gee, what we need to understand is that uh, understanding of language, as is Jeff, isn't just a, s- the, a set of symbols in the mind, right? But it's actually an activation of a whole lot of uh, neurons, and that's the right way to think about it. And mm. in fact, if you have a tool to think about a concept or a thought as a set of activations, yeah, then what you're doing is matching activations and translating to another language. So it, it's the 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 inside the, the the encoding and then the decoding right right so uh so that was really cool um rich was talking about uh the possibility that uh we need to grapple with the fact the system changes when you interact with it so reinforcement learning the cool idea is to reach out and act in the world yeah and learn about your world through acting in the world really cool but that changes the world right and the that's observed, an Kat. interesting notion <laughs> yeah. about whether or not the system that you interact with later is in fact the same modeled system you were interacting that with you built before with. yeah yeah um and uh you know yasuo was talking about how uh how much more we have to do how easy it is particularly in supervised systems to get the wrong thing to happen mm. on the front side and that what we really need to do is understand more about you know what the uh the world the context of the system is and how we're going to learn the context of the system that drives uh, a good machine learning system very cool ideas
0: Excellent. So, mm-hmm. so interesting. So what, what's happening right now amongst the team of, of researchers at Vector who aren't sort of, you know, the big three to five uh, that's really exciting you?
2: Uh, you, you know, there's... <laughs> 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 um, I, I'm going to not be the person that fills you in in all the details. what their research. I know you're talking to a number of people. What I want to say is, is how well they're working together. I and mean, I, I, I see the, my, uh, the faculty meetings that Rich Semmel leads on a regular basis, and they are binding together on who do we want to attract, how do we want to populate these things, what can we do in the summer school, what topics can we add, uh, and in, in, in what kind of resources do we need. It's, it's, uh, it's a very creative and collegial environment. It's deliberate, it's, mm. a, it's a physical space notion mm. that we want to make it so that we pull people out of their dungeons in one building or another, <laughs> put them up onto a floor with a view, give them good computing open space um, in conference rooms that are available to them, and um, you know, make the experience of interacting with other AI researchers, machine learning researchers, Really frequent. Mm. A lot of us go forward when we actually interact with someone who has a slightly different perspective. Yeah. And the problem that we've begun to slow down on the rate we're making progress on triggers them to say something that gives you an insight. Yeah. So if you bump into someone uh, once a week because you're in the same floor and once a month because you're in the same building and once a year because you work for the same university in different buildings. Right. And we make that daily occurrence. Yeah then there's the potential for much more synergy and much more progress. This morning, I was listening to a talk about the uh, medical imaging um, progress and how it's being used successfully in a lot of very cool, sometimes cost reductions, sometimes predictive uh, ability. That Not too long ago, I was talking to um, our recent hire from Harvard, Alanis Boroguzik, mm-hmm. who was talking about the idea that materials are the right ways. His favorite line, and I really like this, was, you know, it, rather than trying to tax or constrain gasoline out of existence, why don't we just make the cost of electric and battery systems so much lower that, that it, everyone will just pick to. it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So why not? What do you, how, do, how do you do that? Well, you have to improve the materials and mechanisms that mm. are involved in those systems. Mm-hmm. And that they've been pursuing um, an, a machine learning approach to decide what to build, what to model, what to experiment with.
0: Fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think that the uh, I mean, Canada is long storied for its involvement in this, in this the community and and the fundamental research. Do you think that there's something special about the quote unquote Canadian approach to ideas, or or maybe even just simply working together? No,
2: I um, I think that in this case, uh, someone somewhere in the not so distant past. Said uh, we can't outspend the rest of the world, mm. so we have to make careful placed bets um, and make those invest enough that those bets can win. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that uh, in, investing in researchers that were pursuing a long range vision uh, led to the deep learning trend. And, and that is a, a really smart strategy. And it's, a, it's many people, it's not any one group, it's the universities. Right for heading towards a model where they give the researchers an awful lot of freedom to decide what to do over a long period of time rather than tying them to short-term contracts, forcing them to do different things all the time. Mm-hmm. It, it goes to the provincial funding structure and ensuring that the universities have a healthy model. It goes to the federal research structure of ensuring that money's placed in bets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, you know I know that Jeff came in the early 80s um, with the goal of having the freedom to pursue the interests that he wanted. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's still doing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you see that shifting at all as that landscape in this community changes? We have we have the traditional academic approach. Now we're seeing sort of proprietary silos in industry that are developing their own kind of quote-unquote academic or, or training programs. How do you think... You fec- know, I'm no. a little older, right? So, okay. so
2: I remember AT&T yeah, research and IBM research yeah. and... You know the um, um, Xerox Park. Uh, I think there's phases mm. in which uh, particular industries in the in growing strong um, recognize R&D as a key component mm-hmm. and bet on R&D mm-hmm. uh, for some time period. But that is a tool to in in their own arc mm. of accomplishment, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, the arc of accomplishment of a. Company is measured in decades, and the arc of accomplishment in a university is measured in centuries. Mm -hmm. So, so it does tend to be a shorter uh, duration hold on that role. But it's important. It has advanced the field time after time. uh, When an industry decides to put a fair bit of money into R and D, and then attracts and enables a number of people to uh, really go where. Now, some of them have done it in a very focused way mm-hmm. on the next problem in their immediate um, uh, product line mm-hmm. and others have done it in a very open way. in some sense in order to attract the best they've had to offer
0: yeah, the ability the to be question, more open freedom. Yeah.
2: And I think that that means that you know, as long as the, the, we continue to have people who really want to pursue the answer to a question that drives them uh, and that they uh, well they will seek a better paying job, they won't give up that goal that I think we continue to have. And I think that's very widely prevalent in at least North American and, and, and European science um, and I think increasingly prevalent in, in Asian science.
0: Yeah. And so it's a, a cycle, a phase, not a sea change.
2: And